Good morning, everyone. One of the things I'm learning as I get older is that life can be very fragile. Things can change in a heartbeat. I mean, literally. Sort of cruising down the highway of life, and then out of nowhere, wham, you get hit by something unexpected, and it just kind of knocks you for a loop. Uh, a diagnosis, uh, a loss of a loved one, a, a friendship that ends. Your company goes through another you know, reorganization, and you get laid off through no fault of your own. Physically, emotionally, economically, things can turn on a dime. It's sort of like Frank Sinatra used to croon, you know, that's life, riding high in April and then shot down in May. And if you've been hammered like that, you know, it's normal to feel like God is absent. It's normal to feel like you've been abandoned without a sense of God's presence or protection. To feel like your prayers are, are just going straight to heavenly voicemail. So far this summer, we've looked at how God works in the lives of a variety of biblical misfits, uh, Job, Jonah, Rahab. This morning, we're going to walk through the life of David, and you might think, well, David isn't a misfit. I mean, he's one of the most pivotal leaders in the Old Testament, author of a majority of the Psalms. How can he be lumped into this category of misfits? Well, there's a point in David's life where he hits rock bottom, when he was in deep trouble, and he struggled to make sense of his faith in God, a place where he felt like he didn't fit with God. To understand his story, let's go back a bit. After the people of Israel came out of slavery from Egypt under Moses, that was about 1500 B.C., they conquered the Promised Land under Joshua, and we looked about that a little bit last week. Then for several hundred years, they were ruled by this loose collection of popular leaders called Judges. But about 1050 B.C., the people decided they wanted to be like the other nations around them who were ruled by kings. And so handsome King Saul, he was the people's choice. But it wasn't long before Saul disobeys God in a big way and God decides to remove him from the throne. And God instructs the prophet Samuel to privately anoint David as the next king. Now David is just this young shepherd boy from Nowheresville, but he has got a big heart for God. David gets noticed when he kills the over seven foot tall Philistine giant Goliath in one-on-one -on -one combat. And so he's brought into King Saul's service. Uh, in short order, he becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David given his, is given a wife, one of King Saul's daughters, and you can kind of see David's getting a little too enmeshed in Saul's life. He gains popularity with the people because he's a brilliant military leader, a poet, a musician. And as David's popularity grows, kind of just chews away at Saul's soul like an old dog gnawing on a bone. Jealousy poisons Saul's mind. He becomes paranoid, certifiable, crazy. Uh, Saul concocts several schemes to have David killed, and finally his jealousy just turns to open hatred, and David has to flee for his life. So as David's life was going in one direction, and that was downhill. In fact, as we read about his life in 1 Samuel 22, he had really bottomed out. He was on the run, a price on his head. He had gone from being King Saul's favorite apprentice to the top of Saul's list of losers. He went from having his photo on the cover of People magazine to seeing his face on wanted, dead, or alive posters. In a quick series of events, David lost his job. He's now an unemployed soldier with no veterans benefits. He lost his wife. She went back to daddy. He lost his home. He lost his mentor, Samuel, who died while all this was going on. He lost his closest friend, Jonathan. And finally, he lost his self-respect. In 1 Samuel 21, we're told that David tried to find refuge with one of Saul's enemies named King Achish. And I guess believing that old saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and as we've discovered in Iraq and Afghanistan, it isn't always true. 
Turns out Achish was really hot to get David. So in 1 Samuel 21, 13, we're told David pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. David had to pretend to be insane. He's talking gibberish. He's drooling saliva down his head, searching, uh, scratching up the furniture like he's a bad house cat. Can you imagine anything more humiliating? He barely escapes from Achish, and so alone now, he's fleeing into the rocky wilderness of the Jordan. And he comes to this cave called Adullam. And this is the lowest point of David's life. He had had a lot of losses. All the things he had counted on were gone. In the cave of Adullam, he he has no hope that anything's ever going to get better. He, He has nowhere else to go, and he's mentally exhausted, physically spent, emotionally just wrung out. He's got nothing left. Every ounce of emotional stability has just been squeezed out of him. So can you sense his loneliness in that desperate spot and in the damp darkness of this cave? If you want to know how he really felt, all you have to do is read the song that he composed about it. It's called Psalm 142, and let me read that for us this morning. A mascal or song of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, no one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Can you hear David's struggle, his loneliness? I mean, he's lost everything, but in the middle of all that he's lost, David has not lost sight of God. He desperately cries out to the Lord for deliverance. In the psalm, we get this glimpse of David's heart. There's this deep place in his soul that only God can see. There's, there's just an inner, inner tenacity, an inner perseverance where he just cannot give up. He's holding on by his fingernails, but he can't simply just throw in the towel no matter how bad the situation has become. You know, a lesser man would have drowned himself in booze or self-pity. A, a lesser man would have gotten lost in a sea of depression or even considered suicide. David is barely holding on. He had been beaten down all the way down, but David kept looking up. He had been beaten all the way down until there was no way way to look but up. And when he looked up, God was there. David was brought to a place where God began to shape him for a new beginning. He brought him quite literally to nothing, and it was there that God began to redirect his life. Have you ever been that low? I mean, I know some of you have because we've talked about it. I know some of you are there or near that point even this morning. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. But God has been working in you to bring a new beginning as we look up to him. Here David is broken. He's just crushed, physically, mentally exhausted. So how does God begin to answer his prayer? Well, in a very unlikely way. If you pick up the story And David escapes from King Achish, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it says this. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and his father's household heard about it. They went down to him. All those who were in distress or in debt or were discontented, 
gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. God brings other people alongside David to help him in his new beginning. From a frightened fugitive to a formidable leader, that didn't happen alone. He needed a company of the committed, a band of brothers. And here's the key truth that we see in Scripture. Often a new beginning can only happen in the context of community. God uses people around you to bring healing and hope. Trying to fly, fly solo, trying to do life on your own with no connections, no commitment to others, you know, that's not God's way. Real hope happens best in a group experience when in the circle of God's mercy you can feel openly accepted and empathetically understood. A group experience where you feel openly accepted and empathetically understood in the circle of Christ's love. Real change often happens in community, not in isolation. But who does God bring to his side? Look who comes first. It's his family. Folks, this is not exactly good news. As far as we know, there wasn't much love between David and the rest of his clan. Way back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, when David was first anointed by Samuel, it was only after all his older brothers had been rejected as candidates for the job. And David's father, Jesse, had actually forgotten about David. Samuel came to their house and was asking for the next king. And Samuel had to ask, well, are these your only sons? Jesse goes, oh yeah, there's that other one, the runt of the litter. He's still out with the sheep. A few years later, when David's brothers are in Saul's army, David brings them provisions during the standoff with Goliath, and all he gets from them is the back of a hand and an angry rebuke. They actually accused him of just goofing off from tending the sheep by bringing him them food. So their arrival at the cave was not necessarily a show of loyalty or affection, they were probably afraid that King Saul would take out his anger towards David on them. I mean, it was common practice to go after an enemy by wiping out the whole clan, you know, kind of mafia style. They might not have liked David, but they knew that the safest place they could be was right next to him. I imagine David probably felt conflicted about their arrival. Sometimes when you're in a cave, you know, you just want to be alone. You want to be left alone, but still... Family is family, and there was some comfort in family being there, even a dysfunctional family. So they crawled into the cave with him, and as, as imperfect as it was, the family was a source of healing for David. You know, we all wish we had perfect families, but, you know, that's not going to happen. You can't choose your relatives. You're connected to a group of people for life, whether you like it or not. And sometimes a new beginning may involve God working to redeem the relationships that you have in your family. My Uncle George got into a disagreement with his seven siblings, and through a series of events, he cut off all ties with the entire family. No contact with anybody for a number of years, and he was my favorite uncle. Then one summer, a phone call out of the blue. He and his family were driving through Kentucky on vacation. He hurt his back badly. He needed emergency surgery, needed a place for the family to stay and a good hospital. My family lived in Evansville, Indiana, right on the border with Kentucky, and we were the closest, so they called. My mom said, okay. They moved in with us. That summer, I ended up taking care of three nieces that I barely knew. But out of that crisis, healing took place, not just in Uncle George's back, but while jammed together in our house, family bonds were restored, and eventually with the whole family. Could your current struggle perhaps involve rebuilding something that is broken in your family? Could God be wanting to use your family in a special way as they come alongside you?
But David's fathers and brothers weren't the only ones who joined him in the cave. Verse 2 said, All those who were in distress, in debt, or disconnected or, or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men. What a group. Look who God brought him. Not the cream of the crop, but the dregs of society. Rejects, losers, dropouts, a motley collection of more misfits. Look at the three words used to describe them. In distress, in debt, disconnected. Distress means those who have experienced grief who are at a point of anguish, who are feeling the pressures of life similar to what David is going through. Debt, it could have been, you know, heavy taxes levied by King Saul, or it could be that they had borrowed money against their property or even against their freedom in hoping of pulling themselves out of poverty, but, you know, maybe they gambled on crops or livestock or whatever, but they lost. And back then, if you were in serious debt, you might have to work your debt off as an indentured servant, kind of like a virtual slave, perhaps for the rest of your life. So rather than face that, they fled, left their creditors holding the bag, discontented. It's a word that's formed by combining two Hebrew words that means bitter soul. Bitter soul. Have you ever known that feeling? can see some of you nodding your heads. You were looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, turned out to be the oncoming train, right? You, you thought you would find relief, but you didn't, and life has disappointed you. Your relationships have disappointed you. God has disappointed you, and you have disappointed yourself. Things aren't going the way you thought they should. That become, can become a bitter soul. So these were the people God brought to, brought to David. Thanks a lot, God. God gave David the challenge of leading a troubled group of difficult people. And the last thing David needed was more misfits because their negativity can be contagious. You know, negative people drag you down. They, they make critical decision-making more difficult. They blow things out of proportion. Negativity makes faith kind of flicker. It places limits on God. It keeps people from enjoying life. It's sort of like being seasick for the entire ocean journey. But all these discontented misfits, they pile into the cave. Now, archaeologists think they've actually discovered this cave. The only access is through a circular opening about seven feet high. Inside, there's a narrow, low passage that leads to a small cave, and then a winding passage that leads to a room about 5,000 feet in dimension. Other passages branch out in several directions into other large rooms, and they th say there's a space to accommodate about 1,000 people at one time. But this cave of Adullam was no Holiday Inn Express. I mean, I'm sure it smelled like a locker room after a, a game in 90-degree weather. This mob of miserable humanity huddled in this cavern, and David has the responsibility of turning them into a fighting force. Not just the dirty dozen, but the 400 hooligans altogether. They were so tough, they'd make, you know, kind of Tony Soprano keep his nightlight on. The dark cave became a training ground. And David must overcome his own personal discouragement in order to deal with these 400 men who've been through the similar emotional ordeals. The cave is no longer David's private refuge, but a training ground where he would prepare to lead these rough malcontents into battle. David became their den mother, their drill instructor. He took a bunch of unknowns. He sort of became like a Robin Hood. Uh, his Sherwood Forest was the rugged Judean wilderness. It's mountains, caves, and wadis. The same motley crew eventually would become called David's mighty men of valor. You see, not only did David's life turn around in the cave, but the lives of these other 400 turned around because of his leadership. What did they need to turn around and have a new beginning? Well, a few things. First, they needed discipline. 
Discipline like a good coach, David instilled discipline in them, a sense of self-discipline for the road ahead. Because when you're beaten down, it's easy just to let yourself go. If you're going to get back on your feet, you're going to have to have a little personal discipline. In my previous congregation, we had a lot of people who went through corporate layoffs and were unemployed. And they had a great need to have a sense of discipline because their normal routine had been taken away from them. And without the structure of going to work and having a job, it was easy for them to really slide into depression. So we had a group where they could encourage each other. And they had to get up at their normal business time. They had to get dressed and they had to go someplace to work, like a library or somewhere, because their job was now finding a job. They had to work at finding a job as hard as they would work when they had a job. And that takes personal discipline to turn your emotions around. You don't feel your way into better actions. You have to act your way into better feelings. Otherwise, life can become a downward spiral. The second thing they needed was direction, a sense of purpose, a cause, something to believe in, something beyond themselves. You see, everyone needs to believe in something, something larger than self. Could be family, could be your country, could be in a mission that God has planted in your heart. You have to believe in something that's larger than yourself. Otherwise, people sink into that cold despair, sort of like the existential philosophers Camus and Sartre. You have to believe that there is a good God who is still at work. And the 400 began to believe in a new direction for Israel under David's leadership. What is it that you believe in that brings meaning and value to your life? What is God calling you to believe in. And finally, devotion. We don't know much about them spiritually, uh, but we do know they started off discouraged. And discouraged people, they don't need critics. They hurt enough already. They don't need more guilt or criticism piled on. They need encouragement. They need a, a, a caring, available someone, a confidant, a comrade in arms. Uh, David, who brought them military leadership, he also started to lead them back to God, and they became the people God used to protect David and to support him when he became king. So guess what? You don't have to be perfect to do the work of God. And you don't need to wait for the perfect time, the perfect people, the perfect circumstances. Because if you do, you're going to be waiting a very long time because perfect people, perfect circumstances, they don't exist. What we see in this motley crew in the cave of Adullam is actually an image of the people of God, the church. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I love God, but I just hate the church? You know, they go to church, they're looking for God, and to their dismay, they, they find themselves surrounded by ordinary people who are hypocrites and gossips and etc. Folks, don't ever apologize for the church that it's full of imperfect people. David didn't apologize for his crew, the distressed, the debtors, the malcontents in the cave. Jesus ate with crooks and prostitutes. His disciples were stumble bumps who could barely understand what Jesus was talking about. The church is not a building we go to. It's not a meeting we attend. The church is a collection of very imperfect people, saved by grace, whom God is welding together so that they can stand shoulder to shoulder in the circumstances of life, protecting, encouraging, supporting each other. The church is Adullam's cave, where if life has beaten you down, you can find that you're not alone. A place where you can reestablish trust in the Lord by coming alongside others who are also struggling to trust Him. There will be times in each of our lives when we need a refuge, we need a shelter, we need a harbor to pull into when we feel overwhelmed and kind of blasted by a storm. 
The church is to be a place where people can come in and just say, I'm sunk, I've had it. And you find shelter, a listener, somebody who understands. The key for David and the, the key for us is this, is to see that God is at work through the people around us who want to rally to our support, who want to rally to your cause. The message of Adullam's cave is don't turn them away. When you're in that dark place, don't shut the door on the people God sends to you. Be open. Be willing to receive from them. Even when you feel like, I'd just rather be alone, you have to be willing to receive from other people, even from imperfect people. Let them minister to you. Don't let your pride get in the way of God's blessing. Let them into your cave, and you will discover that through God's people, God is still with you. Let's pray together. Lord, I know how easy it is to want to just isolate ourselves, to kind of shut the door on other people, just to kind of wallow a little bit in self-pity, Lord, when we're going through tough times. But Lord, I thank you that so often when you feel far away, you use your people to come alongside because we can see them as they deliver meals and as they offer prayers and as they give words of encouragement. That's really you staying connected to us, Lord. And we thank you for this body, this church that is so full of caring for each other. Help us to be that visible expression of this invisible God, your hands and, and your heart being available to people who are in need. And Lord, help us to receive it when we're in our own cave. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.